Well, good evening. It's good to be here with you. We'll be looking tonight at the Song of Songs. Some of your scriptures may say Song of Solomon. Depending on how far back your translation is, you may have something called the Canticles. The Canticles is basically another word for a song or hymn. And this book is often skipped over. We, we were kind of uh, talking a little bit there during uh, prayer time about how we would be disappointed in our study in Revelation if we said, well, we're just going to kind of skip ahead to the end and, and, and deal with the end. But this book is often, often avoided uh, and not preached from tremendously often. There are reasons for that, I'm sure. Some of the passages would be difficult and maybe embarrassing for, for pastors to undertake on a Sunday morning with with an audience that may include children as well. But I think that for us uh, to avoid scripture is to avoid blessing. And as, um, as we look at this tonight, I, I want us to see that, that God has something for us in uh, the Song of Songs and that um, we can benefit greatly from, from studying this, this scripture. The author of Song of Songs is King Solomon. He's the one who's attributed to writing this, this book or this poem or this song. Um, the evidence for that or the evidence for him writing songs is found in 1 Kings. If you wanted to look in 1 Kings and see a little bit about that, it's 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 32. It says that he also spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. Um, just for reference, that's a lot of songs and a lot of proverbs. Uh, a lady by the name of Fanny Crosby is attributed for writing 8,000 hymns. So he's, he's not the most prolific hymn writer in history. Uh, she would write Blessed Assurance and To God Be the Glory and lots of music that we still sing in our churches today. Um, but just from a writing perspective, uh, King Solomon was certainly talented was certainly a man who was very wise. Scripture tells us that. And um, throughout church history, this book has been one that has been attributed to his song of songs or his greatest hit, if you will. Songs is not just a book. Song of Songs is not just a book. It's actually a collection of little songs. And these songs are uh, put together to form scenes that are interwoven to tell a love story. There's many challenges as we come to this scripture and we read uh, for us to understand and interpret it properly. And we'll get to that interpretation piece in a minute because I want to make sure we take our time to understand uh, interpretation of it. But this should not discourage us from diving in, reading, studying, finding some solid biblical commentaries from trusted sources that we can use to help us as we study. Paul, in writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, tells us that all scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And certainly that is true of Song of Songs. Song of Songs is in the same category as Ruth, is not necessarily having a direct theological frame of reference or, or mentioning God, if, if you're looking for uh, the Lord's name in uh, the Song of Songs, depending upon your translation, you may see a reference to him in chapter 8. Uh, the word Lord is included in some translations. Uh, we'll get to that uh, a little later. But in general, 
this is a story about a bride and a bridegroom. So Song of Songs, as I, I mentioned, is, is, is poetry. Well, this poetry is, is given to us in a dialogue that is taking place between a bridegroom or the beloved or Solomon or the king. You'll see some different names are used. And the bride, who is my love, or the Shulamite. Uh, the Shulamite is, is referring to uh, potentially the uh, area that the, the lady is from, Shunem, but she's referred to as the Shulamite. There are refrains that are, are given by external voices as well. If your scriptures, uh, depending on your translation, may actually say he or she or, the, or love and the beloved, and then you'll see uh, the young women of Jerusalem or narrator or others that you'll see voices interchange. Those refrains are given as you see responses back and forth between the bride and the bridegroom, and then you will have this refrain or this echo that will come from external voices. It's important for us to understand that as we're reading through. If you don't have those, sometimes it's kind of hard to keep up with who's speaking. And so our translations have included those to help us keep straight who's speaking and, and who's talking. There's actually more than one way to divide this book. If we were to try to look chiastically, which is chiastically is the $20 word of the evening, uh, that word just refers to the structure of the poetry. Uh, you'll see some, some of, the, uh, uh, of the sections would be an A, B, C, B, A, and they would make reference that would nest down to the main point, which would be C, and then work their way back out to A. We're not going to get super complex with that because I, I didn't want us to get lost in the detail. So we're going to take a simple approach, which is a three-section division. So first, we can look at um, the loving courtship which you'll find from verse, or chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 5. The wedding consummation, which would be chapter 3, verse 6, through chapter 5, verse 1. And then the maturing marriage, which would be chapter 5, verse 2, through the end, which would be chapter 8, verse 14. There's tremendous profit in us studying Song of Songs. Now that we've kind of talked about the beginning structure, let's move on to talk about some potential inter uh, interpretational challenges that we may encounter as we look at this book. Over the history uh, of Bible preaching and teaching, there's been lots of uh, ways of looking at uh, Song of Songs. There are th the three most common ways that, that we're going to talk about here briefly before we actually get into reading some of the scripture. Um, first, uh, I want you to understand that these are mainstream uh, interpretations and applications, and these have been used by Jewish teachers, by Christian teachers uh, throughout, uh, throughout history. The first is an allegorical approach to the poetry. And an allegory is, is simply a story or poem or picture that is given to help reveal hidden meaning, uh, typically a moral or religious one. Some examples of allegories that we're familiar with would be Pilgrim's Progress, which is an allegory about spiritual journey or spiritual progress in a person's life. From the Bible specifically, we would see the Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son as allegories or stories that are teaching an underlying meaning. Yes, they do have uh, an immediate application, but they also communicate a deeper spiritual meaning. Early Jewish leaders used this allegorical approach when they came to Song of Songs. 
Some of them questioned whether or not the book even had a place in uh, the canon of Scripture. Uh, this has to do with the overall provocative theme that is dealt with, which is a loving relationship between a husband and wife. And they sought to use the allegorical method to really just focus in on uh, the, the theolo theological meanings behind the poetry that was being given. By adopting the allegorical approach, Jewish leaders framed everything within what does this mean from God's perspective being the beloved or the, uh, the king and the, uh, the love or the, the bride would be Israel. And so the entire discussion about the loving relationship between those two was framed allegorically that way. And when you have some difficult passages as they're describing, describing their love for each other, it was meant to mean that that's just an expression of love of God for Israel, or that is how the, the people of Israel feel about God. This makes sense as we move through the book in most places, taking this approach. However, there are some passages that it's hard to explain how the things that are being described in Scripture go with God and a, a nation or a people. And so the allegorical approach kind of falls apart in some areas, but we certainly can see the underlying uh, connection between God and his people. The second thing that, that we see uh, from an, a historical perspective, uh, from an, an, an interpretation, is typological. Uh, typological, is a, it, it takes the poetry to be a form of symbolism. It's very, very, uh, very, very similar to allegorical. Uh, and this is the approach that was taken by the early Christians. They basically took the position that it wasn't about God and the nation of Israel as the Jews had done. Now that they are Christians and believers in Christ, they're going to take it to, to mean it is between Christ and his church. So they, they changed uh, it from, from God and the, country, the nation of Israel to uh, Christ and the church. So when um, they, they do this, they begin looking at uh, the love that, that the bridegroom has for the bride as Christ's love for the church. And when we verse in scripture, we see people and things in the Old Testament. Uh, when we look at them, I, I think we, we see that there are times when we recognize types or, or pictures, and I think all of us can, can, can recognize some of these examples that, that, that we're gonna talk about here in a second, but we see there are things in the Old Testament as a type of or a figure of something else that is coming in the New Testament. Uh, many preachers and teachers use these phrases because scripture has lots and lots of examples. So if we wanted to, to kind of focus in on one place where you could see typology or, or, or a typological approach to scripture, we would look at Hebrews. Uh, in Hebrews, specifically in chapters 9 and 10, we see Christ as the fulfillment of the tabernacle, Christ as the fulfillment of the sacrifice, Christ as the perfect high priest. And we see how those things that were set up in the Old Testament were really shadows. They were foreshadowing, to use a, a, a literary term. They were foreshadowing of things that were to come. And Christ is the type or he's the fulfillment of those things that, that took place in the Old Testament. And so when it is said that a person is a type of Christ, what is meant is that that person or thing behaved in, in a way or was reflected in their actions or characters in what we would see fulfilled perfectly in Christ in the New Testament. Early Christian teachers and scholars adopted that typological view when they taught from Song of Songs. 
It ends up being, as I said, very similar to the approach that the, the Jewish teachers had, and it still has some similar problems in certain sections of the scripture. Early theologian, uh, Christian theologian Origen argued that the Song of Songs illustrates the union of the earthly and physical with the divine and spiritual. Now, that sounds like a very pastoral phrase, right? That's the kind of way that goes together, but he was wrong. Um, we, we, we see that there's, there is types, right? But we don't want to um, get to the point where we are moving into a, a way where we only, uh, it's only allegory or it's only type and it doesn't have a direct application for today. Um, and that's why we have this third one that we're going to talk about, which is a literal interpretation. A literal interpretation uh, and methodology uh, began to uh, become popular in theological circles at the beginning of the 19th century. Uh, and it has a literal reading of the Song of Songs as a celebration of marriage. Now, we agree that there are underlying uh, messages for us from a religious perspective, that there is theological truth, but we don't ignore the literal direct application from today. So a marriage is, uh, as described in the Song of Songs, is a positive, healthy environment where the desires for the bridegroom and the bride can be expressed without fear, without embarrassment. And while there are details given, it is poetic, it is beautiful, and it is understood that within the confines and bounds of a committed marriage, these things are to be celebrated. They're not to be paraded, they are to be celebrated. It's my opinion that as we look at the Song of Songs, we must read it literally while recognizing that there are certain elements of it that mirror the relationship with Christ and his people, whether that be his people, the Jewish nation, or his people, the Christians, today we would say it would be the church. We have to recognize that that is implied. I believe God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, so inspired Solomon in his writing that the Song of Song fulfills all, the, all of these purposes, and that it can be understood literally, that it can be understood typologically, and that it, that it is something that we can use to not only teach a practical lesson, but we can also use to teach a deeper theological lesson. There are certainly other places in scripture where we see God doing this. This is not just the only place. Uh, if we look at uh, the prophet Hosea's life as an example, Hosea is a real person. He has a relationship with a wife who does not love him. And he sought after her. And he went after her, even though she was going after others. And we certainly believe that that real account that's recorded, that recorded for us in Scripture is a literal account of the things that happened to Hosea and his life. He names his children names that have a significant meaning. Not my people, right? Is the names of one of his, his children. And we need to understand that it's not just comical that that was the name of one of his children. It has a theological meaning. God was sending a message through the life of Hosea. And I think through reading of Song of Songs, even though we see that it has literal application, we need to recognize that there is also a deeper theological meaning as well. If we take a look for me, if you, if you would flip to Ephesians 5, I'm gonna drive this point home and then we'll move on to reading more of Song of Songs, which I know is why everyone is here this evening. Ephesians chapter five, and we'll read verse 25 through 33. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. If we focus in just for a second on verses 32 and 33, can this not also be said true of Song of Songs? It's a profound mystery, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Even though that it is true literally that we have physical relations, we have husbands and wives, and, and as it says that we are to cherish and love as we love our own bodies and we are to become one flesh, we don't get embarrassed when we read this, but when we read Song of Songs, many times we get embarrassed because of the language that's used. But it's conveying the same message. As a final word on interpretational challenges, I want us to make sure that we avoid misunderstanding, misinterpretation that would lead us to make the book more salacious, more, uh, more graphic than it ought be. Within marriage, love and expressions of love, both verbal and physical, they're a beautiful thing. They are a beautiful thing. But they should not be sensationalized or made vulgar or exposed publicly because they are a private matter between the husband and wife. Television shows used to understand this. Hollywood used to understand this. They would have a scene with a husband and wife in a, in a television show, and we kind of generally know what's going to occur, but the door closes and the camera fades. We don't need to see and have everything explained to us to understand what takes place within a marriage when a, when a husband and wife come together. We don't need to have all of those details spelled out for us for us to understand for those of us who are married, right? But we've lost that, right? Our world has, has lost that. We, we, want, we want to have all of the information provided. We, we want to move on into debauchery, and we want to move on into embarrassment. And that's, that's not what Song of Songs is doing at all with the details that it provides, because it doesn't provide us the details. It provides us a glimpse and closes the door. We understand, as we read Song of Songs, what is going on inside the marriage, we are to understand that it is a blessing from God. We are not to be embarrassed. We are not to be ashamed. We are to love our spouse. And that's what Song of Songs teaches us. So let's begin uh, examining the text as we move now into, into add some of the scripture. Um, let's take a look first at, as the three divisions that I, that I gave us were, were related to the courtship and, and the wedding and then the maturing marriage. So let's begin in chapter one. We're going to read uh, verses uh, one or chapter one, verse one through chapter four. And this is beginning with the bride or the Shulamite making expressions of love for the shepherd who was Solomon. This is before their wedding and we hear the longing in the bride's voice for her bridegroom. Scripture reads, the song of songs, which is Solomon's. Oh, that he would kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your caresses are more delightful than wine. 
The fragrance of your perfume is intoxicating. Your name is perfume poured out. No wonder young women adore you. Take me with you. Let's hurry. Oh, that the king would bring me to his chamber. So despite her thoughts here as she's thinking about her love and affections for this shepherd, this king, this, this man named Solomon, she repeats a refrain if we were to read on into these exchanges as they talk about their love for each other and as they express their love for each other, and we will read some more. But there is a constant refrain that kind of comes back up uh, several more times about letting love develop naturally and in its own time and its own way. For those who are in dating relationships, young people, right? We don't have a ton of young people in here this evening, but I would say to young people, just as I say to my own sons, don't rush. Let love develop over time. I always tell them, keep the relationship where the relationship needs to be so that if something happens, you don't have regrets and worries about taking it further than it should have gone. That's an admonition that we should be giving all of our children, and it runs counterculture to what our world says, right? The world says, rush in for instant gratification. Scripture says, don't do that. Let love take its time. Let love develop naturally and in its own way. And we see in this courtship that that's what happens. Their, their love for each other through their, their, their talking back and forth, the, the dialogue, we see that the love develops and it deepens. The Shulamite makes comments that leads us, if you read down just a little bit further in chapter one about her appearance. She's evidently being made to work in a vineyard. And so she's been out in the sun and she's had to work for a living. She's not been able to be in, indoors. And because of her sunburned skin and her appearance, she feels a little self-conscious, and she's worried about what the shepherd Solomon might think of her. She's not, she says, I've not been able to tend my own vineyard. That's a play on words to say that she's not been able to take care of herself. She's not getting a mani-pedi and, and getting her hair done at Z Salon. She's not able to do those things. She's had to work. And so she's self-conscious, but Solomon praises her beauty. And in this husband's, I see practical application for us, right? I sometimes will tell my wife that I think she's beautiful and she'll have just gotten done running two miles on the treadmill. And she'll say, what are you talking about? I need a shower, <laughs> right? Uh, but beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? And if we take that a step further and we're thinking about how God looks on us, let's think about how God looks on us with our sin. Let's think about how God looks at us and, and, and our feelings of inadequacy, our feelings of wretchedness, our feelings of unholiness, but yet he loves us, and he loves us so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for us while we were yet sinners. So the, some of the references uh, that, that, that she, she, she makes back and forth to the husband uh, are, are going to be somewhat odd for us, and, and some of the comments he makes towards uh, his his future bride are a bit odd. Remember, they're taking place in a different time in a different culture. But I believe we can understand what's being conveyed here. I doubt very, very few of our gentlemen will go home this evening and tell their wife that her hair is like a flock of goats coming down Mount Gilead. Yeah, that's, that's not really one of those things that we say, right, to, to our wives. And maybe we're not going to say, hey, you know what? Your teeth, they look like freshly shaved sheep coming up from the wash, each one with its twin, 
Those are not things that we say, right? But we understand. He's commenting her on her appearance. If you want something that's a little more, a little more, uh, I guess, uh, contemporary, let's take a look at chapter two, verses one through four. And she says, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. And he responds, as a lily among brambles, so is my love among young women. She responds, as an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among young men. With great delight, I sat in his shadow and his fruit was sweet to my taste. And he brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me is love. These loving, affectionate conversations that they have back and forth are expressing their love to each other. And we see that this courtship section ends uh, in the beginning of chapter three with the Shulamite having a dream where she loses Solomon and she searches the city for him and she finds him. And at the end of that section, as she's dreaming about him, she repeats the refrain not to force love. The next section in, in chapter three that we'll talk about, the, the, the wedding consummation, is, begins with this procession of Solomon being brought in on a, uh, like a, a chariot type thing that's being carried. He's got like a fancy seat where he's being carried by uh, some of his servants. And there are mighty men with swords that are, that are coming along with him. And it talks about, once again, the beauty of his wife, all that's and the beauty of the wedding night. And we're not going to go into great detail in all that's discussed, but they do consummate their marriage. God blesses their union, and they are together as one flesh. We're going to read verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 6 through 11, just, just to hear a little bit about this procession of Solomon as he comes. It says, Who is this coming up from the wilderness like a column of smoke, scented with myrrh and frankincense, from every fragrant powder of the merchant? Look, Solomon's bed, surrounded by 60 warriors from the mighty men of Israel. All of them are skilled with swords and trained in warfare. Each has his sword at his side to guard against the terrors of the night. King Solomon made a carriage for himself with wood from Lebanon, and he made it its post of silver and its back of gold and its seat of purple and its interior inlaid with love by the young women of Jerusalem. Go out, young women of Zion, and gaze at King Solomon wearing his crown. His mother placed on him the day of his wedding, the day of her heart's rejoicing. In this, thinking about the coming of the bridegroom, I have practical thinking, literal thinking of of. of of Solomon coming, but I also, my mind goes to the theological and I'm thinking about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm thinking about that beginning of that verse uh, in, in verse uh, six, where it says, who is this coming from the wilderness? Like columns of smoke. When we see columns of smoke, we should think back to the leading of the Israelites in the wilderness, a column of smoke by the day and fire by night. We think about the coming of the Lord in his glory and he's coming for his bride. Church, that's us, right? From a theological perspective, we're seeing this as a type of Christ coming. We should be seeing Christ coming for us, his church. The church that he died for. The church that he purchased with his own blood. The church that he loves. His beautiful bride that he has sanctified and prepared for the day of the wedding. 
And as the wedding section ends, we move into a maturing marriage. And as they move into the time of the maturing marriage, we'll see that they actually encounter a time of difficulty. Earlier, I mentioned the life of Hosea and how Hosea was uh, pursuing a wife who, who did not love him, who he had to, to pursue. Well, there is some difficulty that arises here in Scripture. It, it, it says that uh, the, the husband or, or, or Solomon is at the door, but the wife refuses to open the door unto him. That's just imagery that shows us that there was some sort of separation between them. And when she went to him, he was, he was gone. He had rebuffed her. He had, he had left. She was overcome with guilt, and she searches the city for him. But by the time she finds him, uh, she has encountered some guards who beat her. And this is supposed to give us the, the symbolic nature of a pained conscience about how she was separated from him and how she sought to be back with him. And again, if we're thinking about our own marriage relationships, certainly not a single one of them is perfect. We, we go through times where we have difficulties, but one, the, the important thing is that we work our way through the difficulties and we find our way back together. And in, we think about it theologically, we, we, we would say that as we have strayed, each of us has strayed and gone our own way. We, we have looked to our own wisdom. We have, we have wronged, we have sinned. Even for those of us who are Christians, sinning doesn't stop. We, we, we try to do it less, but we understand that we're all gonna continue to fall short. But what's important is that we get back up and we continue to pursue after and follow our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as they are brought back together, the book closes with a happy ending as they are reunited and they are reconciled. And we're going to look at a closing section of Scripture from chapter 8, verses 6. And, the seal. and it says, Set me as a seal on your heart, as a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as unrelenting as Sheol. Love's flames are fiery flames, an almighty flame. A huge torrent cannot extinguish love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If a man were to give all his wealth for love it would be utterly scorned. And as we look at this, this scripture, this would be the one section where, depending on your translation, you may, you may see the word Lord. Some translations at the end of verse six say, it's flashes or flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. I know the CSB does not have that. It, it says uh, an almighty flame. I think, the, I think the ESV actually has the word Lord where it says the very flame of the Lord. But let's think about what this means to have a seal on our heart. My seal is represented on my ring finger on my left hand. I wear it as a symbol of my love for my wife and as a symbol to everyone else that I have made a commitment to my wife to love her I'm sealed. My finger, if I take this off, is actually changed. So I could take this ring off and put it somewhere. If you were to observe my, right, or my left hand, where my, my ring goes, it's physically different because of the fact that I've been wearing this uh, for, for over 20 years, right? And I'm sealed by my promise, I'm sealed by my commitment before God and before my family and these witnesses is what the pastor said. And for believers, 
if we're to look at this theologically, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. When we become followers of Jesus Christ, when we place our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. He puts his mark upon us, and we are his. And when we see that seal being set upon our heart and a seal on our arms, his love for us is as strong as death. How do we know that? Because Jesus Christ died on the cross for us. It's as fierce as the grave because he conquered the grave in dying for us in our place. Many waters cannot quench his love. Floods cannot drown it. Money cannot buy it. It's a free gift of love. Because God has loved us first. And his love is what seals us. His Holy Spirit has sealed us for the day of his return. So, I hope this evening, as we've looked at Song of Solomon, we've looked at the structure of the book, we've talked about um, the the way that the the, the poetic language is used to express feelings of love between a husband and wife, I I hope that you will be encouraged to study more on your own. I hope that as you study that you won't miss the fact that there are literal things that we can see and we need to do as a result of reading this. I hope that you don't miss the fact that there are theological implications that impact us or should be impacting us to, under, to help us understand how God loves us and how he loves his church. We are in a time in, 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 our, in our world where there's a great deal of confusion about what marriage is. There's a great deal of confusion about what love is. Divorce, attempts to redefine sex, gender, marriage, all of those things are in, in complete contrast to what God has set forth in Scripture. And a study, Solomon's Song, helps us recover some of that biblical ideal for marriage. So what do we do? As a result, well, we read, we study. We remember that as we read and we study, we see that the, the bridegroom and the bride pay attention to each other. They compliment each other. They love each other, both verbally and physically. I'm not going any further on that. If we need to set up a counseling session to discuss those things, we can. But suffice it to say, we are to physically love and support our spouse. Encouragement that is offered should be genuine and loving, knowing that we all have our own problems. And as we age, we may not be exactly what we were when we were younger. And we need to understand that our spouse loves us. It's not about what, what we look like on the outside anymore, right? It should never have been that way in the first place. But we see in Scripture that despite our, our self-consciousness, that our spouse loves us for who we are. We should recognize that God loves us for who we are because we are his children. We need to plan to spend time together. Yes, we need to spend time together, right? We need times when we don't have distractions. We don't have our our lovingly little blessings that that God has given us, our children. We need to allow them to, to spend time with some other loving adults called grandparents or other friends and family. We need to have that time to spend together. And as we spend time together, 
we will be working and building on our marriage. The same is true for your relationship with your Lord and Savior. As much as we want to spend time and we should be spending time on our marriage, we need to spend time on the one who laid down his life for us. So this book would also be a call for us to spend time in our relationship with our Lord. So as, as we close in prayer, I encourage you, don't be afraid by the language. Don't be afraid by the poetic nature. Don't be afraid of, uh, of any of the, the references that are, that are somewhat dated or from a different culture. Understand the meaning behind the loving comment. There's nothing in here that's salacious. There's nothing here that I would not be proud to read from the pulpit because it's God's word. And I hope and pray that you are grown in your walk with the Lord and you're grown in your relationship with your spouse as a result of reading Song of Songs. Please join me as we pray. Lord God, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for Song of Songs. Lord, we thank you for preserving this one of the 1,005 that, that songs that Solomon wrote. Lord, we thank you for preserving it for us in Scripture. We thank you for the, the practical, literal meaning that you have for us in our earthly relationships, Lord. And we thank you for the theological things that we see as we relate to you. We pray that we would be blessed by the studying your word. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us and lead us and guide us as we go about our, our days. We thank you. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.